write in Romans chapter 15 here this morning. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12 and probably land on verse 13 when we finish. I titled this morning's message, You Before Me. You Before Me, because it's a continuation, actually, of chapter 14 and uh, our responsibility for what some of us would call the weaker brethren and what that really means. I think maybe to illustrate, you know, this entire text here this morning, I'm reminded of a humorous story. Um, I got to believe it's true. I don't know that it's true or not, but there was a, a mom who was preparing pancakes one Saturday morning and, and she had a two boys, one Kevin, I think he was actually, a, I put it in my notes different, but he was, he was seven and his brother Kyle was five. And uh, mom had placed a, a plate of pancakes down in front of them and they began to pull on, they began to fight over it, you know, as, as kids will do. And they were arguing over who should get the, the pancakes first. So the mom grabbed the plate of pancakes and she stopped. She thought, this would be a teachable moment here. So she said to her boys, she said, you know, wait a second, boys. She said, let me ask you a question. She goes, what would Jesus do in a moment like this? And they were looking at each other and she didn't wait for them to answer. And she said, what Jesus would do is Jesus would prefer his brother and let his brother have the pancakes. So she set the plate back down in front of him. And both the boys looked at each other. And Kevin, who was the older brother, he grabs the plate, pulls it to himself, and he looks at his brother, Kyle, and he says, Kyle, you be Jesus. And I think, I think if you can understand that, that totally captures what Paul would communicate to us this morning here as we read this together. But let's read verses 1 through 12, and we'll pray. He says this, Paul, he says, in verse 1, it says, We who are strong must be considered of those who are sensitive about things like this. And what the things like this, remember, going back was what? It was the foods that we eat. Was it kosher? Was it not kosher? The things that they would drink. And then what day they'd go to church on. Those were things that I have shared with you in the past. Those were what we would call lesser things or minor things. Or they shouldn't be things that we divide over, but unfortunately we do. And so Paul is addressing that. But he's writing to the stronger what he's talking about, the stronger brother, the stronger sister here, how we should respond uh, to the weaker brother. And he says, we must not please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ did not live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promise to be fulfilled. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting the followers of Christ Jesus, that all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you, so that God will be given glory Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises that he made to their ancestors. He also came that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing your praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him all you people of the earth, 
And in another place, Isaiah said, the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles and they will place their hope on him. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, as Larry was praying in worship, it is just simply my prayer as well, that we would just not be hearers of your word, but Lord, we'd be doers, that we wouldn't be conformed to this world, pressed into its mold, but Lord, we'd be changed by your word, by the renewing of our mind. And so I thank you for these that are here today, those that will be watching online, that God, that we would just simply accept your word, we'd receive it, Lord, we'd believe it, that it'll do what, Lord, you purpose it to do. That's what Isaiah would declare, that the word of God doesn't return void, that it always does. God, will you purpose it to do? And so we thank you this morning that you who began this good work in us is faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, we, we look at uh, uh, that acrostic in the sense of uh, what we say about the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. God, we ask you to instruct us today, Lord. We love you. I pray your peace and your comfort, Lord, over uh, my family today and, uh, Lord, my extended family. I know, Lord, as their hearts are hurting and they're, they're dealing with this, this tearing away, that, God, as you declare in your word, that we don't mourn as the world mourns as those who have no hope. But, Lord, thank you that you're our hope. Thank you that there's hope always in Jesus. And may each and every one of them turn to you and not from you, Lord in these hard days. And I just thank you for our church family and Lord, pray, Lord, you would bless them today. We love you. We look forward to communing with you today as we receive communion together. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you so much for loving us like you do. Just use your word as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you look at this, you know, in verses one through the first part of of uh, verse three there, he says, you know, that you're, you who are strong, be considerate of those who are sensitive. And again, I just shared that with you. And that, and again, he, but he, I like the wording here in the NLT he says, we must not just please ourselves. So there is something about pleasing ourselves. There's nothing wrong with pleasing yourself. It's just not that you're putting yourself first all the time. He says, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord for even, and I, this is in verse three, the first part of it, he says, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. And so he's saying, you know, we have a responsibility. If, if you're strong in the faith and you, you understand the grace of God and that it's not by works which any man can boast, it, it is God's gift to you. And you're not earning your way. You're not trying, you understand you don't deserve it. You're not legalistic about it. You know, some people, when they, like I said, they get caught up in what day they should go to church or, you know, certain foods that they, they can or can't eat. And God's going, you know what, if that's, if that's how they want to live, you know, on earth, then that's okay. Cause it's not going to affect their eternity. Our eternity is impacted only by one thing is what we believe about what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross and who he is to us. And, and again, if we're right in that area, everything else falls into place. And he's going, you that understand that, you know, major on the majors, don't major. He might say on the minors. And Paul earlier had written, remember, he said, you know, as much as it's possible with you, what? He said, be at peace, right? Be at peace with all men. So do your best to try to be agreeable. You ever met somebody that just disagrees with everything? It just doesn't matter. You know, it's like they just always, it's like whatever it is. And, and you go, man, last week, didn't you think the opposite of that? You know, and you just go, man. And it, and again, it's just, it, it drains you. It's just so draining. And, and, and religious people can be that way. 
I like what the J.B. Phillips translation of Romans 15, 1, how he puts it. He says, we who have strong faith ought to shoulder the burden of the doubts and the qualms of those of others and not just go our own sweet way, you know? And so what he's saying is you don't just brush people off. Don't just, you know, um, make it seem as if, you know, they're, they're not important or their beliefs aren't important. Um, you know, but take time to, to understand, to comprehend Jesus himself. You know, when you study his life, I mean, uh, he had a hard time pleasing people. Do you, do you realize that? I mean, you think of, he was perfect in all of his ways, right? He, he never sinned, didn't even have a bad thought. And yet people, you know, misunderstood him. I think, you know, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, you know, Jesus said this, he was speaking first of John the Baptist. He says, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. So they looked at John's life and they saw the way that he lived. He goes, he's demon possessed, right? The religious Jews did. He says, and then the son of man, he's speaking of himself. He says, on the other hand, he feasts and he drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. And then Jesus ended it and he said this, he says, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results. And so what he was saying is that, you know, John came to you and he observed the most strict dietary laws, you know, and you guys accused him of having a demon. He goes, and Jesus said, I came just the opposite way. I came eating and drinking with you and I, I ate with you, I supped with you and you guys call me, you know, a, a drunkard, you know, and a glutton. And you say that, you know, I hang around with publicans and, and tax collectors and sinners. And so he ends it, he just basically just says, you know what, I'm just going to trust my father. I'm going to leave it in his hands and I'll let the works speak for themselves. And we know this of Jesus. He what? He walked the walk and he talked the talk. It, it all added up with him. I also like, you know, Ray Stedman, um, one of my favorite commentators I, I like to study and check against. He put it like this. He says, I think this is what Paul has in mind here. He tells us that our Lord is the example and there'll be times when you cannot please anybody. You ever been in that situation? He says, there will be other times when you can. And if you can, you should. And this is what I want you to pay attention to. He says, but there will still be other times when if you did, you would hinder people in their spiritual growth and then you should not seek to please them. So there are times when you shouldn't seek to please other people. So we need to be praying constantly for a manifestation of God's what? His spirit of what would we call that? Discernment, right? Discerning, go, you know, in this is everything isn't just black and white. We'd like it to be that way, but there is a lot of gray matter. I like what Ray Stedman went on to say. He said, be careful that your giving in does not allow your neighbor to be confirmed in his weakness, that you do not leave him without encouragement to grow or to rethink his position. And I like that. He says, I think this is very important and reflects some of the things that Paul has said earlier in this account. We are to seek to build one another up. If we do nothing but give way to people, and this is another point I really want you to listen to. Let me read that again. He says, if we do nothing but give way to people and give in to their weaknesses, the church eventually ends up living at the level of the weakest conscience in its midst. That is powerful. And that's what we're called to do what? To help people grow and, and to rise up, you know, not to remain, you know, immature, but to grow to maturity here. And so 
very, very profound, you know, in that thought. And you think about, you know, in Jesus' life, if Jesus only thought about himself, would he have ever gone to the cross? No, he never would have gone to the cross. You know, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, we were just there a couple of weeks ago now. It, Jesus prayed. He said, Father, he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, right? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but what? But your will be done. He was always, you know, you think of the title of this, you before me. That's the life that Jesus lived, you before me, whether it was the Father, whether it was us, you know, to have our minds, you know, reprogrammed, you know, we're going to have to over and over again, keep coming back to this and go, Lord, you know, I don't want to be conformed to the world because the world is, and go back to what Larry was teaching a couple of weeks ago. You know, we just live in a world that says me first, me first, me first. You know, it's, I can't do anything until, you know, me, until I'm satisfied. Then I give to you out of the overflow. And the Bible teaches the very opposite. You know, I allude to this passage all the time, but it's, it's, it's so important that we get this, you know, in Philippians chapter two, you know, verses five through eight. Paul says this, he says, you must, you know, again, this isn't conditional. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. It's the ultimate picture of you before me. That's why we love him, that he constantly put us in front of himself. And Paul's saying, you who are strong in your faith, likewise, you need to do the same thing. If, if you want people to change, if you want them to grow, if you want them to come along, or you just cut them off. And we, we find that, right? That's our culture today. You know, we live in a, what, a cancel culture. And it's just the, the world. And so we have an opportunity to shine, you know, like the stars in the heavens, you know, be a light that's set on a hill that can't be hidden. And yet, you know, when you read the Bible and you study Jesus' life, you see from the cross, I mean, this you before me, you know, it's just a beautiful portrait, you know, first Peter 2.23, it reminds us, it says this, it says, you know, speaking of Jesus it says he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor did he threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Such an important truth, you know, to know. You know, when the religious Jews, when they stood there at the cross and they mocked him, you know, what was his words from the cross? He said, Father, what? Forgive them. He said, for they know not what they do. You know, that's a, that's a you before me mentality, isn't it? And, and even the Roman soldiers, you know, that were watching this, like he said, he goes, surely this is the son of God. Nobody, nobody acts like this. Every, everybody else is in entitlement, right? We see that word all the time now. You know, it's my right. It's my me, 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 me. You know, it's not about relinquishing anything. It's like, I have my rights. This is me. This is for me. You know, how about the thief on the cross? A murderous thief at that. He recognizes and makes a recognition of Jesus. And he says, Lord, remember me. You know, when you come in your kingdom and Jesus looks at him, he says, what, today, what, you'll be with me. Where, where? He didn't say in death, right? He's like, that was the obvious. He goes, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah. In paradise. You before me. I, I think it just, as you read this, you, you can't miss that. I, I love this. How about, how about when 
Jesus, I mean, he's been mocked. He's been spit upon, right? And it's right before his death. And he looks out and he sees his mother. She's standing next to John the apostle, Jesus' best earthly friend, right? And he says, woman, and that was a term of endearment, okay? He says, woman, he says, behold your son. And then he looks at John and he goes, and son, he said, behold your mother. You go, what was he, what was he saying? Mom, I'm going to make sure you're taken care of. John will take care of you. My wife told me a cute story when I was in Israel. She said that, you know, our kids were there and they were talking about, you know, life and death and all the things. And, and my son-in-law, Dustin, um, you know, he looked at my wife and he told her, he said, you know, just know, you know, if anything ever happens, he goes, he goes, we will take care of you. And it just meant so much to her, you know, that um, someone just, and she goes, and honey, he was serious. He wasn't just saying, yeah, you can come live with us. You can do the dishes, watch the kids. We go out, you know, I mean, we'd expect that kind of stuff, right? Built in, you know, nanny. Yeah. But no, but to, but to affirm that kind of love and care. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing from the cross. I don't think we could miss. It's a you before me, isn't it? Mentality. And that's the heart that he wants us to have. And I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. We look at ourselves today. As we prepare, you know, in communion, you go, is that how I live my life? Am I a you before me or am I a me before you? You know, who's the filter here? You know, and, and, and Paul is saying, you know, he's, he, he recognizes there's two groups here. There's the weak and the strong. He said, but the strong are going to be the you before me and the weak are going to be the me before you. And so it's a growth. So even wherever you see yourself today, I mean, there's obviously room, you know, for growth. But it's really important, like I said, that we take the time to look at it. Then you look at verses 3b, you know, on here, and it says, as the scriptures say, okay, this is the insults of those uh, who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. Notice what he's saying here. And the scriptures, so what is he talking about? The word of God, the word of God, the word of God is given to what? Instruct us, right? The word of God. So I ask you today, you know, where are you, where do you get the majority of your information? Not all information isn't in the Bible, but for faith and practice, how to live your life comes directly from the word of God. And I am amazed. I stand here amazed at how few Christians read and study the Bible. I'm not talking about, you know, the little daily bread verse, you know, that you got one verse and then that's good. If you could live on that, you know, I mean, you know, my wife and I went to a nutritionist this week and she was showing us in a, in a thing, you know, like what a meal was. And I was going, I think I would die if I only ate what was in what, like a third of a cup of something. I go, no, I eat like five cups, you know? And I was telling my wife on the way home, I go, man, I go, you don't need as much to, to survive as I thought. You know, I'm thinking, you know, half a box of Cheerios is, you know, it's like, it just is what it is. But, you know, feeding constantly, you know, as Jesus said, man can't live by what? Bread alone. Even though you might think you can, that's like dessert for some people. But as the scriptures say, it says the insults have fallen on me. Scripture, scripture, scripture. And he says, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promise to be fulfilled. And again, I, you know, said that Bible, the acrostic, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? 
Paul is, is quoting here from Psalm 69.9. It's not a mistake. It's a messianic psalm. You know, you before me, he's bringing it back to the cross. Everything, you know, in our lives is not what you do or what I do. It's what Jesus has done for us. That's the model. That's what we look to. He's, he's the sufficient one. If we're going to base this on ourselves, you go, you know, yeah, you might be better than me and you might not be as good as somebody else. That's, that's going to leave you, you know, in a, in a terrible place. But when we see Christ as the sufficient one, he's the model. He's the example. He's the one that we're looking to. Um, you're going to always end up in a good place here. But it was, you know, Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross that has made you and I accepted in the body of Christ. Amen. We are accepted of the Father because of his love. And so Jesus will always be the best model. He'll always be the best example. He will always be the supreme authority in our life. And so when you think about the word of God, what is the word of God? You know, Jesus said, and the word became flesh. Everything about the word is about Jesus. You can't just go, well, it's either Old Testament or New Testament. Every word, every, Jesus said, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, every word is good for us. And so when Paul was teaching, you think about this, when Paul was telling people, you know, here, reasoning from the scriptures, what scriptures was he reasoning from? Was it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Was it the book of Acts? Was it Romans? It was the Old Testament. That's what he could. You, you go back and do a word study. It was the Psalms. It was Isaiah. You know, everything that he's doing, he's taking them back to the Old Testament. And again, and so we need to understand, you know, the Old Testament here, not to, to slide it. And then, you know, you obviously look at the first century church, you know, in Acts 2.42, it says, and all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, okay? And for the most part, you know, that teaching was Jesus is the fulfillment of what? The Old Testament prophecy. So they always started in the Old Testament and then pointed everything to Jesus being the fulfillment of all that God had promised. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. And, and so it says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing and meals. And this also included the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So, I mean, we, we understand scripture, scripture, scripture. I mean, you cannot minimize it in your life. And unfortunately, it's happening in the church today. And just don't fall for it. You don't need, I mean, if you go, again, uh, not that I would encourage you to do this, but if you go to a bookstore and you see a religious section, what are the majority of the books about in a religious section today? You know what they are? They're self-help. Self-help. See, I, that was the first verse I learned from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves, right? I mean, I thought that was in the Bible. I seriously, I, 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 someone told me that, yeah, that's, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. And you look today, I'm talking about in 2023, people want to be self-sufficient. They want life without God. That's the country that we're living in today. Now, not for believers, but for non-believers, utopia is something that they think that they can achieve through whatever, you know, means that they can come up with, where we understand that it's God who creates, and it's God who, uh, again, there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth one day, but that's going to come from God. That's not going to come because of man. All we're doing is we're, we're making it come a lot faster, you might say, in this. I like something that C.S. Lewis once said. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. 
not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What he's talking about is, do you have a biblical worldview? When you look at life, where do you, where do you come to the conclusion about life? Does it come from government? Does it come from history? Does it come from the newspaper? Does it come, how do you get it? Or do you get it from scripture? And God is calling us all the way back to Romans chapter 12, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind to develop a biblical worldview that you would look at your life and you would look at life around you through the lens of scripture. And if you do that, you'll be safe. If you don't, there's nothing but harm that will be in your way. It was Mark Twain that once said, he goes, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. He said, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that trouble me. And it's so true. You know, you get people look at it and they read it and they go, ah, you know, I get that, but I don't necessarily like it. Well, it's not a question of we like it. It's good for us because God declared it. And not only do we have Jesus as our example, but, you know, like I said, in the Old Testament, we have all kinds of help here, you know, that we can, again, look to, especially when it comes to yielding up, you know, our, our rights before God. You know, the Apostle Paul, you know, quoting the Bible, referencing the Word of God here, he, he speaks of, like I said, the Old Testament scriptures, one that obviously he would have taken people back to is Abraham and uh, his nephew Lot. Remember, you know, if uh, you study this, you see in Genesis that uh, Abraham and Lot are looking out over the Jordan River Valley there, right? And, and Abraham, by right, as he was older and by right, he should have had privilege, right, in choosing the land. They saw the land was so vast. He said, you know, we've got to, you know, we're going to divide this up amongst ourselves. And what did Abraham do? He allowed Lot to choose first. And what land did Lot pick? Do you remember? The lust green valley. And what did he leave for Abraham? The barren hill, right? And you go, what? it's a, just a, a beautiful picture. Abraham, you know, he's a great example of what? Of gracious living because what? He relinquished his own rights. And they grew up in the Old Testament understanding. Moses, you know, the book of Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, it says, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. Reminding the people, you before me. That was the heart of Moses, you before me. God, if you're going to blot them out of your book, then blot me out too, right? That, that kind of heart, that's what you would see in the Old Testament. One of my favorite stories of David and Jonathan, you know, in 1 Samuel 18, it says, you know, after David had finished talking with Saul, it says he met Jonathan. He was telling him about his battle with Goliath. It says, and he met Jonathan, the king's son, and there was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. And from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. And you think about what did he do? Jonathan was, he recognized what God was doing in David's life and he, he laid down his own rights. He relinquished his own rights for David. And it's a beautiful picture of that. And again, it's the Old Testament that Paul is reasoning from. He's bringing the people back to see you before me, you before me, you before me. 
you know, and I think it's pretty safe to say that, you know, none of these men, they, they, they lost nothing. Would you agree? And what they gave up, they truly lost nothing. I'm, I'm reminded of that quote by uh, Jim Elliott, you know, a great American missionary. He said, you know, he is no fool who gives away that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And it's so true, you know, to give it all up for Jesus, you, you lose nothing. Jesus said, you, there's nothing that you could, you could give up in this life that you're going to lose in heaven. You'll, you'll have everything and more. You know, we'll get to heaven and, I mean, like I said, the first, you know, week your, your jaw is going to hurt, you know, because you're just going to, you're going to walk around. It's going to be, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for them that love him. It's, it's going to blow you away. Verses five and six go on. It says, and may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question begs to be asked, how do we live in harmony you know, with one another? Patience is what he says. Patience that comes from where? Not from ourselves. And you talk to people all the time, man, I, it comes up in every prayer group that we have. I pray for patience. I don't have patience. And we get frustrated because we try to well up patience within ourselves. It's impossible. It comes from God, okay? Yeah, hopefully it set some of us free today, right? Let me by a show of hands. This, this is a good day for confession, right? How many would say you're a little impatient? Not a lot, but you're just a little impatient, okay? There's a few of us in here. Um, it's easy to become impatient with other, other believers. So what do we do? Well, he makes it pretty clear here. You know, pray. Pray and ask God to give you patience. You know, Luke chapter 11, I love what Jesus says here about asking, seeking, and knocking. He comes to the end of that, and he says, you fathers, he says, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? He said, of course not, because you love your kids, right? He said, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to all who ask. And I would just encourage you today, you know, if you go, man, I'm just struggling with patience. Quit trying to go, oh, I'll figure it out. Is God, fill me. Fill me with your spirit. Refresh me, you know. My tank is empty. Those people made me impatient. You know, they drain my tank and ask him to fill you back up. Galatians 5, 23 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. What? Love, joy, peace. What is the next one? Patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It's a wonderful thing. Pray. Just pray. Ask God. And guess what's going to happen when you pray? What's God going to do when you pray for patience? Has anybody ever prayed for patience in here? What happened? What happened when when did he just send you to the beach that weekend and you got to lay in the sand and, or you went to the mountains or you went wherever it is that, you know, that you like to go, that you find peace. And you go, no, no. Oh, you might, he might've said, go to the beach, but guess what's going to happen on the way to the beach. You're going to get behind first a, a tractor trailer that's going 22 miles an hour and it's holding you up. Then you're going to get a flat tire, right? Things are going to happen, you know, along the way, James one, two through four puts it like this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, 
Consider it an opportunity for great joy. All right? It says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance. Now, that word endurance is the same word as patience in the Greek language. Your patience has a chance to grow. It says, so let it grow. For when your patience is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete and needing nothing. If you think back in your own life like I do mine, probably one of the biggest trip-ups in life is, is being impatient, right? It, it just messes you up in, in all things, just being impatient. So pray and ask God, God, I, I need you to fill me afresh with your spirit. You can pray that right now and you're, where you're seated. You can just go, Lord, I, I agree with that. I need that. And guess what? He wants to give it to you. And then the second thing that Paul says we can do is, is just be thankful. Thank God for your brothers and sisters in Christ and focus on you know, what unites us instead of what divides us. You know, there's always a third option. You know, there's where they say there's your your way of thinking, my way of thinking, and then there's, you know, the truth, right? Or there's God's way of thinking. It's just, you know, there always is a third option there. Um, and we need to look for it. You know, for, I mean, decades, Christian counselors and psychologists alike and secular, you know, workplace, um, you know, someone would come in and they would talk about, you know, relationships and they would talk about, you know, hey, this person's doing this or this. And, Many times a counselor will just simply do this. They'll take a blank piece of paper and they'll tell them, okay, put a, put a vertical line down the middle of the page. And some of you are nodding because you had to do that. And you go, and on the left side, you write all the things that are wrong about the person, right? And use another piece of paper if you have to, just keep writing. And then on the right side, write down what? All the positive things. And you start looking at it and you go, when you start really thinking about it, in most cases, I'm not going to say in every case, but in most cases, there's far more things that are positive than they are negative. And it's usually just unforgiveness is that's the big trip up over, you know, some certain thing there. And so again, you know, focus on the things that unite. And that's what Paul's saying. Focus on the things that unite us and not the things that divide us. Verse seven goes on. He says, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given the glory. And that word accepting there, it's the word welcoming. And, and, I, and I love that because I think it helps us really kind of put it into perspective of what God is saying. Look at that as accepting others, as welcoming them, welcoming them into your life as someone who's important to you. That's what it is to accept, you know, because we go, oh, I accept them. You go, but do you welcome? Oh, no. Well, scripture is saying, if you accept them, you would welcome them the same way that, guess what? Jesus accepts you. Can you imagine if Jesus accepted us the way that we accept other people? Ah, no, but welcoming, because that's what he says. No longer do I call you slaves, but I call you what? Friends. For a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. He says, but I've told you everything, right? You're my friends. You're my friends if you do the things that I tell you to do. But see, we're not accepted in the beloved based on what we've done. We're accepted in Christ because of what? He has done. Amen? And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Verses 8 through 12 goes on. It's, it goes, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to, their, to the promises he made their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. It says that is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, for this I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And in another place, it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, The heir to David's throne will come, and he will rule over the Gentiles, and they will place their hope in him. So very simply, God saved the Jews. Why? What did he say? Because he promised it to them, right? It was a promise he made to their ancestors. Why did he save us as, as Gentiles? To show his mercy to the world, that God was a merciful God. And that's what we celebrate today. Ephesians 2, uh, 14 through 16, put it like this. It says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into one people in his own body on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself, that's the key, in Jesus, one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. And he's going, because of Jesus, put to, because of Jesus, we should get along. That, that's what he's saying. Jews and Gentiles should be able to have harmony together because we share the same promised Messiah. And so Paul is saying, you know, he isn't just focused on you know, what Jesus did, but he's also focusing on what Jesus is yet to do. And that's our encouragement even today, you know, as we'll receive communion, is to think about that, you know, that there's, there, we have a hope and a future. It's not just that he saved us in the past, but he's still yet to save us again. It's one of the great encouragements, you know, I can offer my family this week to be absent from the bodies, what? Present with the Lord. And what about those that have gone before us when Jesus comes in the rapture? It says, those who are dead in Christ shall arise, and those of us who remain shall be caught up together with them. And we're going to see him again. That's, that's the hope and the future that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. And to be able to encourage one. And so Paul said that, comfort one another with this. You know, the best for the believer believe it or not, is what? It's still yet to be. It's still in the future. I like, as one pastor put it, he says, if we fail to remember the past, we fail to appreciate the present. If we fail to remember the past, we fail to anticipate the future. Or C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he said this, Christians who do the most for this world are those who think about the most of the next world. It's so true. You know, people say, well, they're so heavenly minded, you know, they're of no earthly good. That's just the opposite. We'll never be earthly good until what? We become heavenly minded. That's what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. We didn't read verse 13 when we opened the service, but we'll read it here because this is really kind of the end of the book of Romans. Paul goes on and he'll, he'll share some personal things here about his ministry. And then chapter 16, you just go through a whole long list of you know, people that he wants to acknowledge. So when you, you look at, um, you know, verse 13 here, and it's a great benediction in the truest sense. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what the Apostle Paul is urging us here is, you know, to unite around God's word, to rely on it, you know, to trust it, that it, it, God's true to his word, that, you know, as you study God's word and you walk in his word, 
it will change you from glory to glory. It will change you. You know, I love, you know Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, you know, if any person's in Christ, what did he say? They're a new creation, right? Old things have passed away. He said, and behold, all things have become new. You know, you're not who you once were. He set you free and he's working in your life to bring about this work. And it's by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a confident hope, he says. You know, and that, and when you look at the word hope there, oftentimes, you know, in the English language, it, it really conveys doubt, doesn't it? People go, well, I hope, I hope, I hope it works out. Well, I hope, I hope. That's not what, that's not what scripture means. When you look at hope here, it's, it's very interesting because it comes from the Hebrew word batah, and, and it has the meaning of confidence and security and being without care, you know, all these actions, like I said, of the heroes of the faith, they were made possible because they had this kind of faith. They had this, this hope, this confident assurance, this hope that God was faithful to his word. Again, it's not that I'm faithful or that you're faithful. It's that God is faithful. And that's where we place our hope. And so when you look at this in scripture, it means a strong and confident expectation. That, that's what hope means. And again, it's not to try to escape, you know, the reality, uh, you know, this world or to get away from problems, you know, in the truest sense, what it's going to do is it's going to put our lives in gear to look to God, to trust God, to walk with God, even when it might not even make sense to us. You know, God, Paul says, is the source of your hope. You know, I've shared this with you many times from this pulpit. You know, it's been well said that a man can go six weeks without food. He can go six days without water. He can go six minutes without oxygen, but he can't go six seconds without hope. And you and I, you know, church, God's called us to be hope dispensers. You know, when somebody's in sin and their life is totally messed up, I mean, the last thing that they need, you know, is condemnation at that point. What they need is they might need correction, but what they need is love. What they need is hope that this thing can be turned around. Because I find that for the most part, people that aren't up on what Jesus is doing is because they're really down on religion. Is because someone's not told them the truth. It's like, you know, instead of it being Jesus plus nothing equals your salvation, it's Jesus plus you got to do this, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And then when they fail, they just feel like I can't earn my way to heaven. Talk to people and they'll say, you know, once I get my act together, you know, I'll come to church. And you're never, you're never going to get your act fully together. We're going to be sinners up until the day that we die. doesn't mean that we're not going to improve. We are, and we should. That's the whole aspect of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. But you're accepted. I mean, I love this thought. I want you to think about this. God could not love you any more than he loves you right now ever. I don't care how much you grow in Christ. I don't care how much transformation takes place in your life. He cannot love you any more than he loves you right now because he loves you with everything that he has. And, and, and yet we're not like that. We, we love in decrees, right? Well, I love you more. You know, it's like, well, Lee, do you love me more this year? You no, know, that was a good year, you know, you know, and, and you just, you know, you look at it that way in human relationships, but not with God. There's always, there's hope. There's hope in him. Joy. You know, you think about 
the word joy. You know, I always think of the acrostic, Jesus, others, and you. Jesus, others, you before me. You know, and, and Paul's saying, there's a joy. It's a joy unspeakable because it's not based on circumstance. It's based on relationship. Happiness comes and goes, right? Good days, bad days. You know, this is not a happy week in the life of my family. But it didn't do anything to disrupt my joy because my joy doesn't come from my circumstances. My joy comes from Jesus. And that's what people look at and they go, okay, that's what it is. Because it's not us. It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus in us. I like what, again, C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And it's so true. Peace. You know this. Wherever Jesus is, there's peace. Amen. So if you're going through a tough time, hard thing in life, ask Jesus. Say, Jesus, come to my rescue. I need you, Jesus. And what does he do? He said, all who come to me, he said, and are weary and heavy laden, he says, I'll give you rest. That's what he desires to do. You know, Colossians 3, 12 through 15 puts it like this, says, since God chose you to be holy, the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Always be thankful. And how does that come upon? He tells us there in verse 13, to trust, to trust. And how do we do that? What does it mean to trust? It means to believe in. Do you believe in Jesus today? You know, it means to act upon him. So it's not just somebody goes, oh, I believe in Jesus. You go, oh, true belief is, are you acting upon it? Because if you're not acting upon it, what does it matter what you believe, right? To trust in, to act upon. And then the ultimate end is we're relying. We're relying on Jesus. And I just want to encourage you with all my heart, you know, rely on him this week. He, he's reliable. He, he will not let you down. He will not leave. He made a promise, and that's what we celebrate today. He said, every time we take this bread, we're reminded his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And he said, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. Everybody else, you know, my sister-in-law went home to be with Jesus. At some point, everybody had to let go. But you know who didn't let go? Jesus. She closed her eyes there at Memorial Hospital, and instantaneously she opened them up, and she was looking right at the face of Jesus. You can rely. You can trust him. And that's what we celebrate today. Amen? Amen. We'll pray and invite the worship team to come on out, and let me cough. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this privilege we have to receive communion together today. And Lord, as we take it, we're just reminded your body was broken for me, for us. Your blood was shed on Calvary's cross. And Lord, we know that because of that, our sins are forgiven. And we thank you for that today. We look forward to this moment where we can just pour our hearts out before you and Lord, the areas of our life where there's sin, where there's failure, God, we can lay it at your feet and you take it and you remove it as far as the east is from the west. And we can leave here today refreshed and restored in you. 
if we've lost our hope or Lord, it's been dashed, God, thank you that you're the God of all hope, that you're here to replenish that today. God, to increase our faith, our faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. Everything that we have need of today, Lord, is right here, right now in this moment with you. And so, Lord, I pray we take hold of all that you have for us today. And Lord, we thank you so much for loving us like you do. Be glorified in this time of communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as you take the bread today, you do that first always, just thank him. Look at that bread and remember it was his body broken for you. And when you receive that cup today, be reminded that that's his blood. His blood was shed on Calvary's cross for you, for you personally. And then as you ingest it, as you eat it and you drink it today, you just realize he is one with you. And then just as that communion elements are in you is a reminder that Jesus said, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And go with Jesus today and walk with him. Enjoy his peace. Enjoy his presence and make his love known where you go today and throughout this week. God bless you as you receive communion.